Good morning, Southbridge. Good morning, Theater 14. We're glad you're with us today. There was a line in the song that struck me this service. It didn't strike me in the first service quite as much. So we get him. He's our prize. What you get for following Jesus is you get God. What an amazing gift that we're separated from him because of our sin and because of our wanting to do things our own way, but that he gives us himself, that he reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why we sing. And he loves us. What an amazing aspect of why it is that we praise him. And one of the reasons why we gather together this morning, I want to say thank you for each one of you that are gathered together here with us this morning. This is an exciting day for us as a church. This is our Commitment Sunday. Uh, as Pastor Jad was saying, it's a time where we're going to make some financial commitments to building our first ever facility. But it's really the vision that we've been talking about transcends a facility. It transcends reaching 10 people each. It transcends all that stuff. And that we want to see lives changed. And our mission of connecting people to Jesus for life change. And we desire, if you're a guest here today, that your life would be changed. You're here on a special, unique Sunday. And I hope that somehow, just even through what you see happen here, um, that you'll feel, you'll sense, you'll know the love of God. And that God will transform your life in a special way. And it'll be a special day for us as a church body gathered together as well. And so we're glad uh, that we're able to be here today. Also, I'm going to wrap up the series that we've been doing called Whatever It Takes. And the premise of the series has been that Jesus Christ did whatever it took to reach us. And then the question becomes for us as his followers, are we willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill the mission he's given us, to seek and save the lost, to make disciples, to, and there's all kinds of different language in the New Testament saying the same thing, to introduce people to Jesus Christ so they can grow in a relationship with him, to experience wholeness and what they were created to be to the point where then they could reproduce and share that with somebody else. And so that's the process, and that's what we want to be all about. And I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump into the message this morning. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts. And we bow symbolically, we bow our heads before you, but we come as humble, humble creation, humble creatures. And uh, we cast our cares upon you because you care for us, and we can't fix our problems. We come to you with all of our problems. We come to you with everything, every inadequacy, uh, all those that are experiencing depression or anxiety or struggle with sin, all that stuff, and we cast it upon you, God, and we ask that you bring freedom today. We ask that you would speak truth today. We ask, God, that you would call us to walk by faith with you today. For those that need to know your son, Jesus, as Savior that today would be the day. For those uh, that are dealing with a battle, a spiritual battle, God, that you would speak to that. For those that are rebelliously in sin, that you would make them miserable, Father God. Please speak into their hearts and make them miserable because you love them and because you want more for them. Father God, speak to me and speak through my lips this morning the message you've given. Even if it's different than the first service, just speak it through me this morning as your vessel. And Father, make our ears open to your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Time to preach. I think you go on here. It is Commitment Sunday. So, kind of make a commitment. Can't be riding the fence, right? I told my wife earlier in the week, I said, all right, I'm going to start with a North Carolina sports team analogy this Sunday. She says to me, beat the dead horse, why don't you? And uh, for those of you who haven't been around, I've been talking with our church about the fact that my wife and I, we moved here six years ago, came here for the purpose of starting this church, seeing people transformed by Jesus, but didn't have a team. Our heart hadn't fallen in love with a team. And some of you have contributed in recruiting us to your different teams. And I've shared with the NC State people, I got an outline of points of why it is that I should choose NC State if I'm really a Christian. And so that was sent to me. Um, I saw a football game a few weeks ago. They played Florida State. I don't know if you saw that. And uh, beat, I think at the time, the number four team in the country. And I got a text message from friends that were at the game. I had people invite us to go to the game. It was an exciting time. And uh, we were thinking, you know, NC State, we've got a lot of fans that are, or a lot of friends that are NC State fans. A lot of people in our church are NC State fans. And so we are thinking about our commitment. And then last week I told my wife, I said, they're playing each other, UNC and NC State. And I'm just going to go, let's just go with whoever wins that game. 
If you were watching the game last week, you know NC State wasn't the team that won that game. There's a different team that won that game. And so I couldn't make the NC State commitment on the spot with that. But I talked to my wife a little bit, and my wife had the discernment and foresight to say to me, that's too much pressure to put on one game. So you can't pick just based on one game. So before the game started, we said, all right, that's not going to make our decision. And I remember there was a game the week before that UNC had, and uh, I don't know if you saw that game, but there was another team that played in that game. And so I've told you already, though, that I can't go that route. I can't be rooting for devils. And got people that I know that I like to give a hard time that like the Blue Devils. And so we couldn't go that route. So, there you go, Hendrance. That's supposed to go to Hendrance. They're Duke fans. They are allowed at our church. So I couldn't make that commitment. I wanted to get a t-shirt that showed UNC on one side and NC State on the other side, the house divided, and say, we'll just go with both, right? Oh, wow, you guys are real active a minute ago. You can't go with both, can you? That's like the non-commitment commitment. In fact, the Bible talks about it. It says you can't have two teams. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. No, it doesn't say that, does it? But it's close. I know the Bible doesn't say that, but you know you can't pick both teams. That's the non-commitment commitment. But see, a lot of people in our society, in our culture, we don't like to make a commitment, do we? And I'm not really ready to make a commitment to a team yet here in North Carolina. I haven't been to a game. I've got to get my heart gripped by one of those things. And maybe that bothers some of you, that I have made a commitment. Does it bother you when people won't make commitments? You ever, you ever see people that have commitment phobia? They're afraid to commit to something. Maybe you've watched TV with them before, and it's like there's a timer on their thumb. They can't even stay on a channel very long, right? They're just surfing all the channels. Or you go to try and go out to eat with one of these people, and you say, where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? And it seems like they're being nice. They just can't commit to a place. We've got, like, commitment phobia as a culture. And you know what? That's difficult for us when we talk about being followers of Jesus Christ because at the essence of Christianity is commitment. God was incredibly committed to us. He sent his only son for us. And Jesus Christ, he said he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. Talk about commitment. To give his life as a ransom because somebody had to pay for our sins. And he gives his life as a ransom for our sins. In fact, I love how Paul says it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ didn't even consider equality with God something to be held on to. See, he was fully God. And he didn't do any of the dumb stuff that we do. He, didn't, he was tempted in every way, but he never committed any sins. And he became obedient to death. That's commitment. And he became obedient to even death to the point of death on a cross. That's a criminal's death, but he committed no crimes. He did no sins. He died that death for us. That was commitment to us. And we've been asking ourselves in this series, if he'll do whatever it takes for us, will we do whatever it takes to fulfill the mission he's given us? And you look at what he says in the scriptures, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, if anyone... It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're super Christian or if you're new to this whole thing. It doesn't matter if you're a Duke fan. It doesn't matter if you're a UNC fan. It doesn't matter if you're an NC State fan. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That means it costs you everything. That means it costs you your life. That's commitment. And while I struggle to pick a team, whether I pick a one UNC team or pick NC State team or pick the Duke team or pick some other team. I was told after the first service, you're not talking about the Pirates. You know, people are giving me a hard time about some of these things. Can't pick the Demon Servants, okay? Can't go that route. But even though I struggle with that commitment, do you know what I know that I'm committed to? I'm committed to the vision that we have as a church. I'm committed to seeing people that are about to step into eternity going to hell to take a different step and to turn to Jesus Christ and experience reconciliation with God because of what Jesus did for them. I'm committed to, we talked about how things are not the way they should be in the city. I'm committed to this city. I'm committed to North Carolina. 
I don't have picked a team yet, but I'm committed to this place. I'm committed to seeing this place transform that we would become a city on a hill, that we would be the light of the world. I'm committed to seeing people that we talked about last week that are struggling in different things, people that have been playing religion. And I don't know if any of you decided to visit Bible studies this week. And you go to different churches and you see the same people at different churches at all the different Bible studies and even individual independent Bible studies and people are content with playing religion and the greatest step of faith that they take is that they're gone from their driveway at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And I'm committed to seeing those people walk in a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ where they walk by faith. And I'm committed to seeing people that are struggling in other relationships. Some people have gone from relationship to relationship to relationship, constantly being hurt, constantly having bad experiences, to know what it is to walk in real relationships with other Christians, with people that love them with a Christ-like love. I'm committed to seeing people connected to Jesus Christ for life change. People that are in bondage to walk in freedom. People that have been hurt to experience healing. And all that happens supernaturally by God. Because here's the thing. You can't do that. And I can't do that. And nothing we'll do today makes that happen. We've got to trust God to be able to show up and do that. But what he asked from us is he asked for commitment. He was committed to us. And he says, if anyone, if anyone, he wants us to commit to him. And so today we're going to talk about, we've been talking about whatever it takes. He did whatever it took. And asking ourselves, well, we do whatever it takes. And it will take commitment. We're going to be in the book of Joshua today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me. It's in the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, 6, number 6. So if you're flipping through there in the Old Testament, it'll be in Joshua chapter 3. And some of you may remember when we first announced some of the things that we're talking about. September 9th, about nine weeks ago, we were in Joshua chapter 3. We'll be back there today. If you remember that, perhaps you remember that Joshua was a new leader on the scene. He's been the leader of Israel for about 30 days now. About 30 days ago, Moses died. And maybe you remember the story of Moses and what happened with him, that he led the people, he left his palace, the Egyptian palace, and he walks with these people that are living in bondage, and he leads them out of slavery. And they part the red, God parts the Red Sea, and they walk across, they get to the other side, and now their next step, the next step of faith for them is to walk into the promised land. And Moses, as the leader, sends 12 guys on a reconnaissance mission, 12 spies, to go into the promised land and to see what it's like. And they come back, and they all give the same report. Everything's big. The people are big, the army's big, the obstacles are big, all the challenges are big, the food is big, everything's big. Two guys say, but our God is bigger. Joshua and Caleb. But there's ten other spies that they're talking about the circumstances, they're talking about the doubts, and they're talking about the difficulties, and they're talking about all those things. Those ten guys are able to rumble up and cause problems amongst two million people. And because of that, and they're so afraid of the circumstances, they fail to walk by faith. They fail to take that step. And so God punishes them, and here's how he punishes them. Aimless wandering for 40 years. And now it's been 40 years later, Moses dies a month ago. And now one of those spies, Joshua, is the leader. And he leads the people to a body of water, where on the other side you can see the promised land. And what it's going to take for them, though, is a commitment. And look at what he says to them in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua... And all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan. It's about seven miles travel there, but it would take a full day because of all the stuff they had, all the people that were involved in the terrain. So it was a one-day road trip. And where they camped before before crossing over. Verse 2, after three days, where they're sitting there at the edge of this water, after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant, and that's the symbol of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant is symbolic of God's presence. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are are Levites carrying it, you're to move out from your positions and follow it. 
then you will know which way to go. Since you've never been this way before, you walk in his ways, you follow him. You can't get ahead of him, but you've got to be able to see him. Don't get too far behind him. You've got to see what's happening here. You've never been this way before. You walk by faith. But keep a distance. About a thousand yards, a little over a half mile. For multiple reasons. One, so everybody can see there's two million people. Two, because he's holy and you're not. You need to be reminded of that. And do not go near it. Verse 5. Then Joshua stands up and he tells the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now, if you've read this story before, you know what the amazing things are. You know what's going to happen with this body of water. In fact, if you've read the book of Joshua, you know he continues to do amazing things as they continue to take over the promised land and the battles they enter into and the victories that they experience. And sometimes even the difficult times they go through because of discipline, you know that God's continually doing amazing things in their midst. But remember this, they don't know all that. These people don't know the story. They're living the story. So try and imagine for a moment what it was like to be these Israelites. Try and imagine what it was like that your leader, that you've been following for 40 years maybe for some of them, Moses, he's just died. And he just died a month ago. And now there's this new guy on the scene, and he was Moses' assistant. So for all you know, he's just like a sidekick. And now he's stepping up and he's taking leadership. And you remember 40 years ago he had an agenda to get into the promised land. And maybe some people are rumbling and doubting Joshua at this point. And Joshua says to them all, rise up. We're going to make a little road trip. It's going to take a day. Get all your stuff. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to go on a day road trip with all your stuff? So you got your, your family, you know, your spouse, your kids, your stuff, whatever the stuff is, including animals and pets. Like you're taking everything. So imagine your cats and hamsters and dogs and whatever all that stuff is. And let me give you a little background information about what it was like in Bible times. They didn't have DVD players for the back seat. Okay, you're going on a road trip. It's going to be a little while. They didn't have that on their camels, okay? So they're strapping everything to the minivan or camel. You imagine all this stuff. Now, husbands, imagine you've got it all packed nice and tight, right? And it's all perfect and nobody touched anything and we're just going to start moving. You know what that experience is like? Then your wife walks up and says this, Oh, honey, my mom's coming with us too. All right, everybody who laughed has problems with their in-laws. Just kidding. You can imagine what it was like then. So it's not just your kids and your animals and your stuff, but also your extended family, your in-laws and their friends, and also your neighbors and their in-laws and their friends. There's two million of them with their kids, with their animals, with all their stuff. And they're going to go on a one-day-long road trip with this new leader. And when they get done with that one-day-long road trip, it's a dead end. They stop at the Jordan River. And we'll read later that at the Jordan River, in verse 15... It's at flood stage. And what that means is that all the snow's melted up in the mountains and it's been raining for the spring rains, the harvest time. And so this river is now expanded. It's multiplied what they're used to seeing it. It's normally about 100 feet wide, 3 to 10 feet deep. One commentator I read said it might be as much as a mile wide at this time. And the waters are raging and they're looking at this. And then they just sit there for three days. (laughs) Having fun yet? No DVD player? Got the in-laws arguing over stuff? Kids won't stop touching the camel? You know? And now you're looking at this deal? And Joshua let us hear. Then after three days, he doesn't go around and do it. He tells the other officers, the other leaders. He says, you go around and you tell the people that when they see the ark, the symbolic presence of God, go out. That then they get at a distance just to keep their space. And everybody wants to see what's going to happen. They keep their distance, but to walk, to take steps of faith. And what he's telling them is we're going to cross. They don't know how. They don't know what's going to happen yet. But let me tell you something. When they cross and get to the other side, they're committed. There's no going back. And they're going to take steps of faith. They're going to be a commitment. But then Joshua stands up before the people after all the officers have gone around and listen to what he says in verse 5. Consecrate yourselves. 
you know what that word consecrate means? Make preparations. Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves for what God's going to do, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. You're going to make a commitment to God. You need to be prepared. And it's not just prepared like at the camel packed right, make sure everybody's in line and they stand in the right places. Those preparations will happen, but you need to be prepared by God. That's what the word consecration means here. And we make a commitment to God. We need to be prepared by God. That's our first point today. When we make a commitment to God, we need to be prepared by God. You think about how preparation is necessary in any kind of commitment that you'll ever make. Think about the biggest commitments that you've ever made in your life. Whether it was to go to school at a certain place, whether it was to pick a team to cheer for, whether it was a career path that you would go on, whether it was to get married, whether it was a church that you would go to, maybe it was to have kids. I remember when my wife and I decided to make that commitment to have kids. That's a huge commitment. You're going to be responsible for another human being. Like, think about all the preparation that went into that. Like, you know how to make your own bed at that point when you can do that. You know how to do other, feed yourself. Like, there's lots of things that had to happen in your life. And so we decided we were going to have a baby. We made all the right preparations. Some of them were fun. And, uh, yeah. And then, so to get that out of my head. And then some of them were other things that we had to do. Like, I had to go to the doctor. I had to make preparations for the delivery of the child. Had to go to the store. We prepared by buying, you know, a little crib that we were going to have, which had more parts than it needed. I didn't understand that. <laughs> but I had to put it together. And I had to realize that if all good dads apparently are able to assemble things without the instructions, and, and some reason I have extra parts every time I do it, but good dads are able to do that. It's part of the preparation. But I was blown away the day that they gave us the baby. We delivered the baby. They gave us the baby. Have us take it home. There was no test. Does that boggle any of your minds? They're going to have you take a human being home, and they don't ask you, like, in this situation, what would you do? They just want to make sure it's buckled into the car. And we take this baby home, and I remember seeing our little Ella the first night as she goes to sleep, and just put my hand on her and watching her breathe. And, you know, they breathe really fast. And so she's breathing there. And I'm just thinking to myself, when I go to bed, I hope she keeps doing that. <laughs> and I have no control over that, do I? God is preparing me to trust him more. Trust him even with my child. Trust him with my light. Trust him with... Everything he's preparing. And if you're going to make a commitment to God, you're going to be prepared by God. And that's the kind of preparation God was doing in the hearts of these Israelites. Yeah, practical stuff. How to pack the camel, get everybody in line. You've got three days to get ready, but also consecrate yourselves. Get ready. Prepare yourselves. Because God's going to do amazing things. And you're, you're going to want to be a part of it. And think about where we're at as a church. We're at a pivotal place as a church. Today being Commitment Sunday to build our first ever facility, it's just a strategic step, just a piece of, of what we're talking about doing. It tran- what we're doing as a vision transcends a building. It transcends all the strategic elements of it, but it's a piece. And, and I hope you're prepared for what's happening. I believe that God's been preparing us more than the nine weeks we've been talking about a building, more than any of that stuff, the last week that you may have been talking about your number, any of those things. I believe God's been preparing us for the last five years for this. And you look at where the Israelites are at, you don't think that they had one day to prepare, do you, for this? Think about all the backstory for them. Forty years wandering in the wilderness. Do you think when God provided manna from heaven, he was just making sure they had something to eat that day? Or was he training them? I can be trusted. I will provide for you in the most basic way. And somebody share with me after the first service about how God's taking care of their family as they're walking by faith. God does that. He teaches us and Small steps, baby steps, preparation steps, he takes us through. You don't think that as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, that some of those parents that have now died off told their kids what it was like when they believed the 10 spies instead of the two. 
And you don't think when life was tough and they're wandering through the wilderness and there's snakes and there's thorns and they're struggling to find a place to sleep that they imagined what it would have been like had they walked by faith? If we had gone into the promised land, what could have been, what would have been true? And they tell their kids that. And you don't think that was preparation for those kids? To think, if I get my chance, I'm not going to blow it. They've been being prepared for a long time up until this point. 40 years. In fact, you can go back through this nation, not just this generation. They were promised the land about 500 years prior. And Abraham, when he leaves without knowing where he's going, when he walks by faith, he's promised a land, seed, blessing. The people are the seed. And as God blesses them, they're to bless other people. This is the land. And now they're standing at the edge of the water, and they can see the land on the other side. And the question is, will they make the commitment to walk by faith, the cross? And they've got a day to prepare their hearts now. And part of that day, imagine what it was. They look, and it's that flood stage, this river. And it's flowing, and the current's there. You can hear it. It's intimidating. And there's no, they're not swimming across. They've got all their stuff. They're not going to be able to walk across. It's too deep. It's too wide. What they're looking at here is an impossible circumstance. Oftentimes, what God uses to prepare us to walk by faith is when we see the impossibility of the circumstances before us. Just think about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember how Jesus was preparing his disciples? The feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there are throngs of people coming towards Jesus and his disciples. We read later in the story there are 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, Matthew tells us. So we're estimating about 15,000. That's a conservative estimate. 15,000 people coming towards Jesus and his disciples. And what does it say about Jesus? It says he knew what he was going to do, but then he leans into Philip. Hey, Philip, where, where, where would we buy bread for each one to have a bite? Well, for all of these people to eat. And Philip, abacus brain, Mr. Calculator Head, pulls out his spreadsheets, starts figuring it all out. And you know what he says? It's impossible. We don't have enough money. There's not a place to get the food. There's too many people. We can't do this. Jesus didn't ask, if you could, where are you going to go? But you've got to come to grips with the impossibility of your circumstances. And you think about what we talk about as a vision, as a church. We want to see a city redeemed. We want to be a light to the world, that people would see our lives, and they would glorify our Father who's in heaven, that this city, people would move here, not because of the jobs and not because of the location, not because of all that stuff, because of the people. And the people have been transformed. And people have been transformed by God, and therefore live differently. That's what we want to see. And so that means, as we talked about last week, when you look around and you see things are not as they should be. I don't know if you did an internet search. I don't know how many brothels there are now. Last I heard, there were 80 in our city. That means there are people in each one of those homes, because those happen inside neighborhoods, by the way, inside sometimes nice neighborhoods, that are being used as objects. And that means there's people that are addicted to sex that are coming there and paying for that. And there are businesses that you drove by on the way here today. That's not how things should be. We want to see those people walking in freedom. We want to see those people that are being used as objects realize that they're loved by God, that they were God's workmanship, too, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for them to do. We want people to realize that are Christians that are going through the motions, that God strategically placed each one of us in a place where we live, we move, we have our being, and he has us here for a reason. There's a mission that we're supposed to be on, and we're not allowed to play religion. And so we want to see people that are just attending services and attending Bible studies and going to all this stuff realize what it is to have a real vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and to walk by faith. And we want to see people that are hurting and have addictions and all that stuff, whether it's through our celebrate recovery ministry, whether it's through a Sunday morning experience, whether it's through a Bible study, whatever it is, we want to see them come to a place where they walk in freedom. And do you realize that's all impossible? Do you realize, forget about a city. You talk about picking your one, right? 
that you love your one, share with your one, care for your one, all those things for your one, you can't change that person. Not even one. It's impossible. Have you ever tried? I've tried before. Okay, it doesn't work. You ever try to argue somebody into the kingdom? That doesn't work, okay? If you did, then they wouldn't be genuine change anyways, because only God can change our hearts. Have you ever tried? God will teach you a lesson of frustration (laughs) if you try to change someone like that. I remember when I first became a Christian, do you know the people that I most wanted to come into the kingdom was my family, my mom, my dad, my brother. Do you know who the hardest people were for me to share with? My mom, my dad, my brother. But I remember there were days where I would decide, today's the day. Like, I'm, I'm, this is going to work. I remember I'd go to church on a Sunday, and the pastor would preach something, and I'd think, that's exactly what my dad needs to know. And I'd go home, and my dad would be sitting in his chair watching golf or something, and I'd be like, this is it. It's going to happen now. I've got a verse. Like, I'm, I'm equipped. Like, I'm a new believer. I didn't even know the Bible very well. But I got the verse the pastor just said. I'm going to go in there. When I say it, he's going to be on his knees. Like, it's going to be awesome. And I thought I would get him converted. And I'd go in there, and I'd sit. Next thing I know, we're talking about birdies and bogeys, and I don't know. It just went off. It didn't work. And I'd pray for him, and I'd try, and I'd think, if I could just get him to attend this thing that's happening in our church, like, this will work. Just come to this thing, and that'll get him, right? And you know what? But a year before my dad died, someone else led him to Jesus. And it was like God was saying, and I'm, I'm not saying he didn't use the prayers, and he didn't use uh, different times, all that stuff. But he didn't need me, because he does the work. And part of what he was doing was a work in me through the process. One of the things I've learned from being a pastor, you can't change people. I mean, I've sat with people before in counseling, talk about their marriage. I've talked to guys before and, thought, and said, with your marriage, would you, would you talk to her? Like, could you go after her? And they won't. And I start feeling like, I care more about your marriage than you do. And I get mad, and I just wish there was a phrase I could say. It was like, a, shake, you know, just something click. Just make it happen. I can't change a person. And you, you pick a person that you ask God to break your heart for. You can't change that person. It's impossible. But here's the great news. God wants to use you in the process. That he carries his message in jars of clay. That's us. Fragile, broken vessels that submit to him and trust him to change us. And he uses us as his witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power. You'll be my witnesses. You know what a witness is? That's a noun. That's something you are. It's not just something you do. That as he changes you, that he uses you to then change other people. And that's his plan. That's what he does. And he's constantly preparing us for that process. And I think about how he's been preparing us corporately as a church for these things, to be a witness in our city, to be transforming agents to the people that we come into contact with. And he's used everything. I don't think he wastes any stuff. Silly stuff, big stuff. And I was talking to a, a young lady. Tuesday night we had a dessert where we were sharing the vision, talking about the building, talking about finances, making sure everybody's questions were answered, all that kind of stuff. And there was one young lady I was talking to, kind of an impromptu story that we ended up talking with each other about. And I said, really, that's kind of the seeds of the whatever-it-takes campaign that we've been doing. I told her a story about when the church first started, before we ever launched at the movie theater, we were talking about over at uh, Caribou Coffee, we were talking with a business guy, myself and he were sitting down, and he was smarter than me, had all these spreadsheets laid out and all that other kind of stuff, and knew all the marketing strategies, and we had been meeting over at the country club, it was kind of a change for our people to come over to the theater and the setup and the teardown, so working through all those issues, anytime there's change, you've got to work through some of that stuff. And I remember we were talking about how we were going to invite people from the community to, to know that we were even here, to come. And I said, we need to do a mass mailer. And he said back to me, Scott, do you realize that mass mailers get like 0.01% return on, on what you do? And to do that mailer was going to cost us about $5,000. And we had in the bank at that time about $5,000. 
And he's sharing this with me. I was kind of discouraged. Like, then how in the world are we going to invite people? There's so many people to invite. And then it was like, it just clicked in my mind that my mom lives in Arizona at the time. And I said to him, if there were a church starting in Arizona where my mom lives, I would hope that they would do whatever they need to do to invite her to church. I said, we need to do a mailer. We ended up doing a mailer. And some of you that are here today came as a result of that mailer. In fact, some of you, your lives have been changed as a result of that very mailer. In fact, you heard a testimony of a young lady last week named Michelle. And she shared her story and what it was like, some of the experiences she had and the bondage that she was walking in. She came to this church because of the flyer, as she called it, but the mailer that she received, she came to know Jesus Christ six months later. So is it worth it? Those are the seeds of a mentality of we're willing to do whatever it takes to reach our city. We're talking about a project now that's a lot bigger than $5,000, but they're just numbers to God. Exciting to have a building. All that stuff is great, but it's a tool. It's an instrument we use to see more and more lives change the way that we've seen people's life change so far. I believe all of that's been preparation to get us to this place. And you look at where we're at as a church and the things that we do and the things that we've done. I laugh at some of the things that have happened and the mistakes that we've made, the dumb things that have happened for us as a church. I was telling the first service, I remember the first time that I, I stood up and talked on behalf of Southbridge to a group of people. We had about 35 or 40 people at the time. And I remember even we were debating about how to set the atmosphere up. We were over at the country club. And I said, I don't need a microphone. It'll be more intimate than just kind of casual talking with people. And the uh, kids were going to be next door. And you could see into the room next door. It was a little bar at the country club. Can you imagine today if you dropped your kids off? Those are your guests. Uh, we're just going to have your kids go over to the local bar and they'll sit there. <laughs> I'm here to pick up Johnny. He's by the scotch. You know? Can you imagine what children's ministry would have been like? Well, that's what it was like when we started. And they had this little bar next to us. And I remember I stood up and I started to talk and shared the vision. We want to reach a city. The same kind of stuff that we're talking about today. Light, on, you know, light of the world, salt of the earth. And we're going to see people's lives change. And then the next thing I know, boom, crash, bang. And I kind of look like peripheral about where Jason's sitting right now. Hi, Jason. I can see in the window. And there's kids over there. And somebody gave them a ball. And as I'm talking about light of the world, city on a hill, all that stuff, I'm thinking, who in the world gave those kids a ball? I told that story a few times, and finally Jason told me, I brought the ball. <laughs> In other words, Scott, stop telling that story. But he told me I had permission to share it today. He's very proud. Your wife talked to me about it after service. She didn't give me permission, but it's okay. I said one more time. And so we, uh, we've learned some lessons from that. Today we'll host about 200 children in Bridge Kids. We've gotten better at learning how to invest in their lives. In fact, I had a, a teacher of a small group come up to me about three weeks ago and tell me that in his, just in his small group, because they break them, they do large groups, and they break in small groups, he had six boys trust Christ as their Savior. How amazing is that? And so we're learning, even from silly things like balls, even from things like mailers. It's, it's influencing, it's preparing us for things like today. We're going to make a commitment to God. We've got to be prepared by God. I believe as you look at our church right now, we're more ready today than we've ever been to make disciples. Just this morning, we started, you remember on September 9th, we talked about restructuring our small groups and changing our values. And one of the things that did was that we started what we call encounter groups, which we'd never had before. It makes us more focused on making disciples than we've ever been before. Just this morning, in first service, we had 30 people in our New Believers e-group that's talking about how to study the Bible, how to pray, how to share their faith, what it looks like to give, what it looks like to serve, what it looks like to fast, like to just what it is to live out New Testament Christianity. And so I believe today we're more focused and more equipped and more ready than we've ever been to make disciples. And we're more intentional than ever before with our other e-groups, with our embrace groups of living out the one another's, more intentional than ever before with our engaged groups of reaching a city for Christ. But God's done all this work in the process over the last five years to bring us to this point. We're going to make another commitment to God. We've been prepared by God.
If you're going to make a commitment to God, you're going to be prepared by God. Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. God's going to do what he does. He's going to do amazing things. But it also requires a step of faith. It requires action. It's not just preparing. It's not just saying, I believe he's going to do amazing things. I believe, I believe. That's not faith. Look at faith in the New Testament. Faith requires action. It was when Abraham left without knowing where he was going. It was when Abraham was going to offer his son as a sacrifice. Faith without works is dead. Faith is action. It was by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. When Moses left the palace, that was faith. It wasn't, I believe you'll free those people, God. I know you got this one. He's going to take action steps to see it happen. It was by faith. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith that Enoch walked with God. It was by faith that Noah built the boat. It was by faith that Abraham offered his son because he believed that somehow, even though it had never happened before, that God could raise him from the dead and still keep his promise of a seed, his only son. It was by faith, by faith, by faith. But it's not just faith and hopeful thinking. It's faith in God. See, every commitment to God requires faith in God. Not only does every commitment to God require that we be prepared by God, but every commitment to God requires faith in God, which requires action steps. And you look at what Joshua says next after verse 5. He looks over at the priests. He said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. Pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went. They took action. Now, try and think about being a priest right now. You don't have any idea what's about to happen. He hasn't told them the plan, and if you do this, here's how it'll look, and here's what it's going to take, and if you, you have to lead us and do these things. And he didn't say any of that stuff. He just says, here's the deal. Yeah, take up the ark, go ahead of the people, and just start walking. And they just start walking towards the water. And then he tells them in the next several verses what's going to happen. But jump down to verse 14. In verse 14, it says, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan's at flood stage. We've already talked about that and how intimidating that looks. The, the Jordan's at flood stage all during the harvest, yet as soon as the priests, as soon as, simultaneous to, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge. So pause. Their feet went in the water. And the water still hadn't parted. Can you imagine for a moment what it was like to be one of those priests? And you're walking and you're carrying the ark. You can't swim across this thing. You're not going to be able to hold the ark over your head. You're walking and you put your foot in. And oftentimes, what you see is that God doesn't show up and tell his people, take a step of faith. Not before, not too late, but it's once you've made an act of obedience that then you see him do what he does. It's once you take that step of faith. Think about Peter when he's standing at the edge of that boat and he gets a one-word command from Jesus. There's a storm raging, the wind's blowing, they thought they were going to die before they thought they saw a ghost, like there's some terror taking place here. And then Jesus says, come. You mean step out of the boat and sink to the bottom through this thing? He didn't say any of that. He said, come. You mean step out, and if I step out on the water, then I'll be able to walk. He didn't say any of that. He just said, come. Take the step. Imagine what it was like to be these priests. They got their feet wet. Now, that was it. Let me read the next verse. It's just their foot. Because as soon as their foot, yet as soon as their foot touches the water. But at least get your feet wet. I think about this scene when I think about my little girls and I take them to the ocean. I take my three oldest girls to the ocean. You know, each one of them, the first time they see it, they're terrified. Now, they love water. They love the pool. They love bath time. 
They love swimming in, in still water, but when they see the ocean for the first time, they see that white water and they see those rapids coming in, they run from it. Like, they'll go down there, as soon as the water starts to come, they run back up the beach. They, they're so terrified. I say the same thing to each one. Just put your toes in. Just, I'll hold you, nothing bad will happen, just trust me enough to put your toes in. That's what God's saying to these Israelites. Just get your feet wet. These priests, they put their foot in the water. Yet as soon as the priest who was carrying the ark let their foot, the Hebrew word says, dip into the water. As soon as it dipped into the water, verse 16, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. Adam's about 20 miles north of where they're at. And then it talks about a little bit later the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea here. That's about 20 miles south of where they're at. So imagine this scene. As soon as the priest dips his foot in the water, for 20 miles there's no water. In both directions, 40 miles. So if you're those people that are standing a half mile back watching this happen, the water essentially just disappeared before your eyes. Wow. But here's the craziest part of the miracle to me. Verse 17. And the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they stood. They stand there the whole time while two million people cross by. But look at what they stood on. Not marshy ground. Not mud like you'd see in the bottom of a river after it's been flowing, especially after flood season. But they stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then read chapter 4. And you replay some of the scenes in different aspects, emphasizing different parts of it. But when you get down to verse 18, look what happens when they come out of that riverbed. And the priest came up out of the riverbed. So after everybody else has crossed by, then the priest come out, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of the Lord, right? And no sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage just as they had before. So imagine this for a minute. You watch this. As soon as they put their feet in, for 40 miles, there's no water. As soon as they come out on the other side, just like it was before. It's a powerful scene. Can you imagine being one of those people that were there that day? And when you saw those waters raging again, you know there was no turning back. And do you know what you just committed to? They know. And if you read the book of Joshua, you know. They just committed to a life of battle. From Jericho, Ai, you go from town to town to town. It's a light. They're going to walk by faith with God, but you know what? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. For them, a military battle. And we talked last week as a church. When you walk by faith, if all you do is talk about doing stuff for the kingdom, if all you do is listen to Bible studies and learn more information, you're totally safe as far as the kingdom of darkness is concerned. That's fine. You can do all that. So he's not going to change that you're in the family or any of that stuff. But if you start walking by faith, you know what Satan's goal is for your life? He wants to cut your legs up from underneath you and make you ineffective. So you don't finish the race. You're still on the team, but you don't finish the race. You read through the scriptures and you see it's talked about all the time, but we ignore it a lot of the times. It's talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. You put on the full armor of God. The shield of faith, the word of God is our sword, and the shield, our faith is our shield. And well, You look through all that stuff. You know why? Because we're in a battle. And we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against angels and principalities. And you have an enemy who wants to destroy your life. Jesus says he's the father of lies. He's the accuser. He will tell you things that aren't true, and he'll try and lead your life by things that aren't true. And if you can use those things to then cause problems in your marriage, cause problems in our church, cause problems in different areas, then that's ideal. Now, if you're not doing anything for the kingdom, he doesn't care. But he does care about individuals that are walking by faith. Think about what happened with Peter. Jesus says to him, 
there's stuff happening you don't see. Satan's asked to sift you. Of course he wants to sift, sift Peter. He's going to preach a sermon. 3,000 people are going to come to Jesus in one day. Of course he wants Peter before that moment. And what does he want to do in your life? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says that our enemy roars around like a, a lion looking for whom he can devour. And Jesus tells us that he wants to steal from you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your contentment. He wants to steal the fruit of the Spirit. We read about in Galatians 5.22. He wants to steal everything he can from you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy this church. He wants to destroy everything he possibly can about your life. And he'll do whatever he can to make that happen. He will do whatever it takes. You're in a battle. And I just want you to know, if you're in walk by faith, you need to be ready for that. Be ready for the battle. Now he gives us ways to fight. Through the scriptures, the shield of faith with the body of Christ, walking in relationship with one another. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism, the unity of the body as we look towards one mission, the mission he's given us, not our own, not any other stuff. But it's a battle. And I love what happens next in this passage of scripture. Look what Joshua says. In verse 19, the verse right after verse 18, verse 19, on the tenth day of the first of the month, of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. So while they were there, part of what happened in chapter 4 is they took out twelve stones where the priests were standing. And he said to the Israelites, in the future when your children, your descendants, ask their fathers, what does this weird stack of rocks mean? What do these stones mean? You tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up for us. See, some of those people weren't there. All of a sudden, Joshua was getting reflective and making this personal. He was there. Caleb was there. The rest of them weren't there. This is the same. I've seen God do this before. And God does amazing things. And I want you to, he's not going to do it for every generation. You tell your kids. Well, God did. And he says, when he dried it up for us until we had crossed over, and then verse 24, he did this so that, here's the reason, all the peoples of the earth might know. Do you realize what God's purpose was for the Jews? It wasn't just to huddle up and be God's chosen people. Sometimes we read the Old Testament, and that's what we talk about the Jews like. Now, that's what they did, and they failed miserably at their mission. It's one of the reasons why you see all the problems that happen in the Old Testament. But his plan was for Israel is that they would be a light to the world. That other nations would see them and they would be drawn to the one true God. They would forsake their idols and they would turn to the one true God and be transformed. They'd be brought into the kingdom. And he says here, this is why. This is why I did this and this is what I want you to do. You set up these stones and they can be a teaching point for those people. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always, you too, you might always fear, that you might always obey, that you might always walk in truth with God. So he did it for them, but he also did it for those he wanted to reach. And you look at this and you think about this story of what would happen for these people. They crossed the Jordan and they all share that story, that common macro story, right? That that day we watched and the priest, he put his foot in, and then people walked across and we all walked across, all two million of us, we got to the other side and, you know, the water came back through. That's their big story. Everybody has that and God's powerful. Same God who did that is the God who would lead the next generation, lead the next generation. He wanted them all to remember. But if you think about it, two million people cross. And when they bring their kids to those stones, that weird monument they piled up, they're all going to have a different story. Because God was doing something different in each one of their lives. Because that's how God works. And these are people. These were real people. 
And so imagine what it was like to be one of the two million. And maybe before you stepped in that riverbed, you were one of the Israelites. And if you're born into Israel, I mean, you're just kind of, it's like being born in the South. I mean, you just kind of go to church. You're just kind of religious. If you're a Jew, I mean, you're just kind of, at least culturally, you're a Jew. And they've been playing religion. And I wonder how many of those guys walked into that riverbed and all of a sudden it clicked. This is real. This isn't just something we do, some annual feast. It's not just a service that we attend. That God is real and he really does stuff. For some of them, their faith became real. And so when they would bring their kids to those stones that they would pile up, those 12 stones that was a monument, they'd say, here's what God did. And we crossed the water and it was amazing. Let me tell you what God did in my life. And then some of those people, think about where they might have been at. Some struggling with sin from their past. And they walk into that riverbed and they walk across. And maybe it wasn't that the water was parted. Maybe it was when they saw the water start flowing again. And they realized, if God can do that, maybe he can wash away my past. And as they stood there on this land, they realized this is a new beginning. And so when they told the story of those stones to their kids, they said, yeah, God parted the sea. And here's what it was. And it was awesome. Let me tell you what happened. It was a new beginning for me. And maybe for some people, they were struggling with sin, depression, anxiety, abuse, wounds. And they walked into that riverbed and they came to the realization, if God can do this, maybe I can trust him with my stuff. If he's that powerful, then maybe he can do, and you fill in the blank, with their greatest desire, their greatest pain. There are people that probably stepped into that riverbed that at one moment were headed for a hopeless and godless eternity. That when they came to the other side, eternity was different for them because they realized God was real. And when they saw those stones, they told their story too. And today what we're going to do in a few moments is it's Commitment Sunday for our church. And some of you, you've wrestled and you've battled through a number that you have written down on a card that's in your envelope. And we're going to have our ushers bring some baskets. They're going to be up here in the front. But if you'll notice, there's some piles of stones here as well on each side of this rug. And if you're in Theater 14, they're right up in the middle. And what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, after you drop your envelope in the little baskets, if you'd come off to the side too and just bend down and grab one of these stones, and here's what I want you to think about doing. Write on them a prayer. Either a praise of what God did to change your life at this church or a prayer of what you desire to see him do in the future. And, And our plan is that we're going to incorporate these and the, and the design of our property in the days ahead. And there's going to be a pile of rocks somehow, some type of monument that people are going to be able to see when they come in. And it's going to be our job to then tell. Tell what it is that God did to bring us to that point. And I believe what's going to happen, and I, what I imagine, what I envision happening, is I'll take one of my daughters by there, and I'll say, Ella, let me tell you what happened and how we got to this point as a church. And I don't think I'll probably tell stories about balls in children's ministry. I might. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on if I want to give Jason a hard time that day or not. But I'm probably going to tell stories about people that came, you know, we sent out a mailer and somebody like Michelle trusted Christ as her Savior. I'm probably going to tell stories like how Jonathan Denton, I was talking to up at our church office yesterday, and he was telling me about, you know, just what God's doing in their life now, and he's going to seminary, and I just started to talk to him about what had happened for him to even come here, is that he and his family decided they were going to move here. We knew them in Dallas, Texas. Before there was ever a church, he called me up and said, we want to be a part of what's going to happen there. I wanted to move here to be a part of starting this church. And then who knew that by being a part of this church that then God would have his wife walk in more freedom than she's ever walked in before in her life as she learns the power of confessing sin to her husband 
and what happened with that and the grace that she saw there and then confessing sin to our body and then what that did to impact our body. What an amazing thing. I think that's probably the story she'll tell. And I'll tell her story. And I'll tell Michelle's story. And I'll tell stories like Dale, who we saw, who said, the changes that have happened in my life, only God could do those. Yeah, God does the impossible. And that's what I'm going to tell my daughter when we come to there. I'm going to tell about how God's changed my life through this church. And always taught me what real grace is. That it's not about what I've done or what I need to do and how can I please God and all that stuff. That to really walk by grace is to trust him to do it. And then to trust in what he's done through the blood and the power of his son, Jesus Christ. And you walk by faith with him. That's what I'm going to tell. And you know what I'm going to say? And we wrote these things on these stones. And I don't know if I'll be able to see mine or not. I don't know what the monument's going to look like. But point in there and say, I put one of those stones in there. And you know what I wrote on that stone? I wrote, and I wrote one for service. And I put on the front, freedom. And then I just put for you and for me. And I want to know what it is to walk in more and more freedom. To be exactly the workmanship that God's created me to be. And for you to do the same. For each one of us to walk that way without worries about what everybody else thinks and without worries of any of that stuff, but to be exactly who God's designed us to be and exactly the place that he's placed us to be and to live out the mission that he has for us. And I want other people to experience that because it's incredible. And hopefully I'll be able to tell my daughter that story. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull out these baskets and in a moment you can come down here and drop your commitment cards in there. If you just take one of these stones and you write on there either how God's changed your life or the change that you desire to see in somebody else's life. And you can take them off to the side after you're done with that. And we'll pray over those, and then we'll just go back to our seats after that, and we'll have a prayer of commitment together as a body at the special time that we have together. So let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you, and we just ask you to show us your glory, to do what you do. Show us your glory even in the unity of our body as we do this, and show us your glory as you change people's lives. I pray if there's someone that needs to trust Jesus today, that today, right now, even in this unique service, that they would see that we're actually doing this for them. We're doing this because we love people. We're doing this because we want to reach more people with the power of what you've done in our lives, Father God. Will you change their lives? And Father, I pray right now for every prayer that will be written down on these stones. And many of us, we don't even know what we'll write. But I pray for every prayer that we will write down on these stones that you will answer them. And you'll answer them as you change lives for the people that will walk by these stones one day. That you'll have them walk in greater freedom. That you'll have them walk into eternity as a result of stepping through the doors of a building and hearing a message. It's such a simple message, but life-transforming message of your son, Jesus Christ, giving everything for us. And Father God, I pray for those that will walk by faith and will step out today financially, will step out, will step out with their family. That I pray that you put a shield of protection around them as the battle that we walk into. Father God, I pray that you would guide us and direct us. And God, use everything in our lives, even the stuff that we look at as bad, to bring yourself glory and show us how it actually is ultimately for our good that will make us more in love with you. Father God, I pray that you'd have your hand on this time that we'll share together as a church even right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.